we've been doing wrong. We've been playing the notes on the page. Playing music is supposed to be fun. It's about heart. It's about feelings and moving people and something beautiful and being alive. And it's not about notes on a page. Welcome, ukulele fans far and wide, to the first episode of the Ukulele Brain podcast. I am your host, Douglas Reynolds, of the Reno Ukulele Festival, and that, of course, was my favorite fictional music teacher, Mr. Holland, laying the groundwork for part of what this podcast will be about. We'll get into our first interview with six-time Grammy Award winner Daniel Ho in just a moment, but first let me fill you in on the rest of what I have in store for all of you ukulele enthusiasts out there. Over the past two decades, I have produced roughly 80 festivals, retreats, and concerts, and I've had the privilege to work with and get to know some truly great artists from many genres of music, and I'll be picking their brains for your benefit here. We'll be delving into topics you won't find in workshops or lessons, exploring what makes these performers tick, and digging into how they develop their skills. But that's not all of it. There's another part of the equation, the other part of your ukulele journey, the part that enables you to strum in time and fret all of those finger-twisting chords, the part responsible for the myth that we call muscle memory. In fact, it's the part that makes everything work, your ukulele brain. In this podcast, we'll teach you exercises and techniques that will have you cooperating with how your brain builds its connections, or neural pathways if you like, which are the key components needed for improving your playing skills and shortening your learning curves. Today's special guest gave me the book that set me onto this path of discovery, and all I had to do was adapt the science to the ukulele, and after only a few short years of figuring out how to do that, Voila! This podcast is born. So let me explain that in another way. Do you remember Wax On, Wax Off from The Karate Kid? Mr. Miyagi had young Daniel-san wax his car in a certain way, paint his fence in a certain way, and perform chores that seemed unrelated to karate until those motions that Daniel would need for fighting became hardwired in his brain. Even though that was just a movie, the science behind that approach is very real. In our interviews and features over the coming weeks, I'll be on the lookout for examples of this neuron wiring method of learning that you will be able to add to however you are currently tackling our favorite four-stringed instrument. Finally, as Mr. Holland said at the beginning of this, Music should be fun, and this podcast will be just that. I hope that you'll give us a listen in the weeks and months to come, and please visit our website, theukulelebrain.com, for a list of upcoming guests, topics, and more. Now, without further ado, let's get this podcast started. So our first guest on the ukulele brain is a good friend of mine, Daniel Ho. 
Uh, I can't believe it's been over a year since we saw each other in Palm Springs with the Uncle Jerome uh, show that we did there. Is that that's the last time, right? January. Yes, it's it's been a year. Yeah. Wow. So nice to uh, see you again. Yeah, you too. We're uh, still hunkered down, waiting for our injections, which are coming soon. What if? I mean, somebody like you, you've been able to hunker down in the studio right and get some work done yes you know um prior to the pandemic half of my life was spent working at home anyway you know all the recordings are done in solitude at home i spent the first six months biding my time recording a new cd a solo cd called playing through changes An appropriate title for what's going on <laughs> Yeah, and um, I was also talking to a lot of people, including yourself, about the direction that this music industry is taking. And um, everyone was trying to figure it out, and I figured if I gave it enough time, then they'd figure it out for me and I can just follow their lead. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, our industry, dead in the water, um, I'm hoping if enough people will take the vaccine that we'll be able to get back to business. Uh, put people in a in a showroom again soon. So we've known each other several years now. I'm gonna go through a few background things and you uh, fill in the blanks. Uh, you studied composition at the Dick Grove School of Music in LA? Yes, I did. Back in 1986 and 87, I studied composing, arranging, and film scoring from Dick Grove himself. Wow, yeah, yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with that school, uh, it was a big deal in its day. Uh, they had Henry Mancini was a teacher. Bill Conti was a teacher. Um, Michael Jackson went there for a while. Barry Manilow, Linda Ronstadt. I mean, this was this was a big deal. When I was at Dick Grove, Henry Mancini did come. And oh, wow. I, I went to his lecture. Wow. And uh, it was a small school and magical. It was so exciting because our teachers were all professional musicians and if you're a great writer you know you'd be interning with one of or ghost writing for one of these tv writers or film composers copying charts orchestrating and it was a direct in uh straight into the industry wow if you proved yourself so we had to perform and uh every thursday we would get our assignment to conduct a big band or a in different styles, Broadway, Latin, you know, dramatic ballad. And we'd have to write it, arrange it, copy our own charts. And on Tuesday morning, he hired whatever ensemble. Uh, Tuesday morning, they weren't, whoever wasn't working, these were studio musicians coming in, like Tony Terrence, a trumpet player who's played on Beatles albums. And, you know, he'd show up for Latin Day. And we would have 15 minutes to conduct our song and get a good take and the recording school part of the dick grove school would record us and we'd have demo tapes so he had an amazing system going and this happened every week for a year and um it is you know the training that i needed to do what i do now wow so did did you go back to hawaii after that or did you stay in la well, the interesting thing was at that time, Mike Post, who was a, 
a very famous TV yeah, writer, Hill Street Blues, Greatest American Hero, you know, all of, he had, I don't know, 15 or 19 shows at the same time. And I had sent my music to him and he had me interning, coming to his sessions and watching his sessions and getting a feel for um, how things went down so I could possibly, you know, have a job helping him somehow. Uh, my dad had a stroke while I was doing the film scoring program. I dropped out of school and went back to Hawaii and I was 20 years old and I stayed there for a year and a half. While I was there, I went to the University of Hawaii and I studied piano and classical composition, classical piano and composition, which is completely different from what I had been learning. Um, and I did it for a year and a half and I then got a job back in California writing for a publishing company, you know, then I got a record deal in 1990 and had a band called Kilauea in contemporary jazz. Wow. What, what was the, uh, the record company? Uh, it was an independent label and uh, they had, uh, it was a very small label, Yeah, um, but you know, um, Russ Freeman was on the label, well, and uh, well. he he started the Rippingtons, of course, and uh, yeah, so yeah. Um, so you you started you studied composition. You began as a pianist and a composer. Am I right? Yes. So this all I'm going to go back a step here. But in uh, junior high school, I had a band director. Ray Wessinger, who was my mentor, he was the former director of radio at NBC and the assistant music director at MGM. Wow. And he had stories about those big musicals of the day in MGM where he would copy parts for orchestras and he'd work with the Beatles and, you know, had these big productions of singing and dancing and big bands. And I think he played with Stan Kenton for a bit too, mm. alto sax player. And he said, he knew I loved music. He said, if you want to be a musician, now this is in seventh grade, mind you. He said, you need to do everything that I tell you to do. He was very strict. And I said, I will. And so he told me, you need to be versatile. You need to be playing different instruments, play bass, guitar, piano, because you never know. You need to know how to write music, copy music, arrange music, compose because if you can do all of those things, you can be the leader of the band. You can create your own music. You can do uh, uh, not work for hire, but royalty-based uh, things, which is uh, intellectual property. You write a song, mm -hmm. it gets played, and you get paid through ASCAP or BMI or CSAC. And, and so he... Did, he told me to do that. He taught me how to write for big band in high school. Uh, sent me to this piano teacher, Ellen Masaki, who's the best in Hawaii. And, and he told me to go to the Grove School of Music. He went to Berkeley. He actually flew on summer vacation. He flew to Berkeley to check out the school. He went to Dick Groves to check out the school. And he said, you are going to Dick Groves. I said, okay. And I did. <laughs> so he's the reason why I, I became a writer. But had I not been able to arrange and put two notes together... I would never have been the leader of that group because I would not be able to write the charge or, or write the music for the group. 
So, so was it a, sim a similar group to like, uh, you know, Rippington's? Uh, very similar. Uh, my favorite musician, one of my favorite to this day still is Dave Grusin. I love his writing because he's a composer. He's thematic. His harmonies are just gorgeous. And I, I love the feeling that he creates with his music. It's um, emotional and intelligent at the same time. Uh, one of the biggest labels in contemporary jazz at that time was Grusin Rosen Productions, GRP Records. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was sort of like my, um, my, the benchmark, you know, that that's what I wanted to strive, get to. I, I strive for that. And a few years ago, I had the great honor of meeting Dave Grusin at the Blue Note in Tokyo. And he was 82 at the time. And just, I was, you know, in awe. So let's fast forward. How did you get into the position, getting into the producing the Hawaiian albums, winning Grammys? Those five years with Kill Away from 1995, I was on someone else's label. In the process, I learned about uh, recording in the studio, Simpty, syncing up 24 track tapes together to get 48 tracks and uh, miking and working with producers, working with musicians. Um, it was a great experience. I also learned about distribution and marketing. And uh, what I also learned was this part of the music business called paying your dues. And that means when you sign a record deal, you are going to get the short end of a stick. And man, my stick was already really short. Wasn't a record deal back then they would loan you the value of the studio time and then that would go against the money you're record sales made or something like that? Yes, um, that would be for labels like Capital or, you know, labels that had recording studios. Um, many labels didn't, but it's called uh, uh, recoupments. So in a contract, everything that you spend on musicians, on food, on hotels, on uh, studio time, audio engineers, anything that had to do with the cost of the production, uh, goes against your royalties. So if back then we would spend, you know, $40,000 on a record, uh, my artist royalty, say, take a number like $1. $1. So every time a CD sells, you make a dollar. And that $1, all the cost of producing is all on the artist. You know what I mean? So you'd sell 40,000 records to break even before you start seeing an artist royalty. So I never did. I never got an artist royalty. And five years later, I re in fact, the situation was even more controlling than that because I wasn't even able to title my own songs. If I wanted to title a song something, I couldn't. The record company guy titled my songs. And he'd get mad if I come up with a title and he didn't like it. Or to have artistic freedom, I figured out you actually have to pay the bill. And so five years later, what I had was not necessarily money, but what I had was credentials. I Kilauea had number one records on R and R on Gavin, top two top ten on Billboard. I took those credentials and I managed to get my own distribution. Because back in the day, you actually had to have a distributor to put the albums in Tower Records, right? 
in the record um, warehouse or Sam Goody's or whatever there was. And that was extremely difficult to get distribution. But once you got distribution, then you kind of can say, hey, I got a record company because you are able to distribute your physical cassettes and CDs. In 96, I started a record label and said, you know what? I am going to do this on my own and, you know, just, I want to do art. And so I, I took on the res all those responsibilities myself. I uh, got rid of managers, agents, everything. And to this day, I'm my own label, publisher, agent, and manager. And Lydia does all that stuff for me. Going back to Ray Wessinger and saying I need to be versatile, I had studied classical guitar for five years when I was nine years old. So I figured, well, okay, uh, Dancing Cat is George Winston, the very famous pianist, his label of slack key guitar music. It was wildly popular in the 90s. Performers would be playing in, you know, performing art centers all over the country and around the world. So I... Uh, picked up slack key guitar and I did my Dick Grove analyses <laughs> while I was on tour in a bus and truck thing with a travel guitar, a baby tailor. This bus and truck tour was called Cirque Ingenue. So I was playing in the pit orchestra of a, like a Cirque du Soleil circus. For a month, I learned slack key guitar by looking at all the tunings and dancing crat labels and um, started doing solo guitar which is an entirely different genre, and basically NPR. It's inexpensive to produce, it's inexpensive to perform, it's something I could record at home, and I started to tour internationally because I could fly to Japan and play a gig. So I began to realize all the benefits of being a solo artist. And then someone in Japan said, you know, you really should sing because you'd have a lot more value. So I said, okay, I went home got a vocal mic, and then I started singing. I sang a song, first song was called The Best That I Can, and I it was on my Pineapple Mango record, and that was 1999. And then, you know, I just kind of went in whatever direction uh, the wind was blowing, actually. So so were the, the Grammy uh, albums all your company? Yes, oh, well, uh, nice. George Kahumoku Jr. Uh, taught me, he's my Hawaiian music mentor, he taught me the Hawaiian repertoire on stage, on the gigs. Uh, prior to the Grammy, we won a couple of uh, local hoku awards, which are like local Hawaii music awards for albums we did. And in 2005, we did a slack key album, uh, Masters of Hawaiian slack key guitar, and it, it won a Grammy and that was nine years after you know starting independent label and I found out about the nomination I wasn't a member of the Recording Academy I found out from my distributor who sent a fax for thousands of CDs and I'm like oh uh, I called them and said hey you know I think something's wrong with this order maybe I don't know can you check it again they said oh no that's correct <laughs> like well what's it for like what <laughs> what's going on here um but yes yeah, so we found out we got nominated and we you know i wasn't a member I, but we got to if you get nominated you get to go to the awards and we you know we're really lucky and i had no idea that someone who 
mixes and masters and records music in a bedroom just like yours could was even on the radar like is that even possible well it certainly is now uh, but this was this was yeah. a couple decades plus ago so i'm surprised to hear that too i just watched uh, part of yeah. the uh, billy eilish uh, documentary with her and her brother working in their bedroom and you know what can be done now is uh, you know night and day to what it used to be but uh, so after that, you won a few Grammys as a producer, and then didn't you win one with Tia, with where you were also an artist? Um, do you get two Grammys if you're producer yes. and artist? Um, <laughs> no, you don't, and you don't. If I've been a few years, I've got two nominations in the same year, and you don't get the nomination, the Tiffany medallions. You just uh. get one. Um, the albums that I won for the six for Grammys, uh, um, with as an artist and also as an audio engineer and also as a producer, mm. uh, and it says on the Grammy, you know, audio engineer, producer, what artist, whatever. Oh, so they stick it all on the same little plaque, huh? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of cheap, so, you know. Yeah, but you know, I did all of them at home and just you know that's... engineered them all and. That's my universal incredible. audio stuff and that's incredible and before we get into the main topic of what i want to talk about um lately you did the album uh, of mongolian music yes those are uh, really interesting i mean we love the mongolian i mean it's so different um did you actually go to mongolia and meet these people or is it all done remotely or what um back then we could travel yeah and we went to mongolia three times uh just outside the city of hulanbir which is inner mongolia and we visited uh the grasslands and you could see it on youtube we have some documentary videos uh just a beautiful place it's about 26 miles from the russian border wow uh, and on that album there are uh, think about five different tribes, uh, Buryat, uh, Manchurian, and, and different tribes from the area singing their traditional folk songs. And I uh, composed the original piece, Between the Sky and Prairie, which is the title right. cut of the album. And learned about the instruments, the dashpalur, tavashur, and throat singing, and uh, the long song, short song forms, and... Um, it's just so inspirational to me to hear uh, notes used uh, in ways that I've never heard before. Yeah, you listeners out there, uh, if you want a really interesting album, uh, go uh, to danielho.com or I don't know where else it's sold, but uh, get the the Mongolian uh, album Between, Between the Sky, Sky and, Prairie. and Prairie. There you go. I mean, it's one of our favorites around here. So anyway, uh, one of the reasons Daniel is our first ever guest on the Ukulele Brain podcast is that a couple of years ago, he gave me a book called The Little Book of Talent, and um, it really planted the seed that ended up being this podcast. I learned from that so much. Uh, I learned there's specific techniques and practice methods that 
um, that cooperate with how the brain wires up its its connections, its neural pathways to enable the human being to learn a task, master something, become really good at it. And um, I, so I want to talk about that. Uh, but first, I want to I want to read an excerpt. It it brings it brought up a question for me. So let me read this, and then uh, we'll we'll get back to it. There is a place just beyond your comfort zone, right on the edge of your ability, where you learn best and fastest. It's called the sweet spot. Here's how to find it. If you are in the sweet spot, you'll feel sensations of frustration, difficulty, and alertness to errors. It's like you're fully engaged in an intense struggle, as if you're stretching with all your might for a nearly unreachable goal. You brush against it with your fingertips, then you fall back and reach again. To understand the importance of the sweet spot, consider Clarissa, a freckle-faced 13-year-old clarinet player who was part of a study by two Australian music psychologists. Clarissa was an average musician, musician in every sense of the word, average ability, average practice habits, average motivation, but one morning a remarkable thing happened. Clarissa accomplished a month's worth of practice in five minutes. Here's what it looked like. Clarissa played a few notes, then she made a mistake and immediately froze. She peered closely at the sheet music, reading the notes. She hummed the notes to herself. She fingered the keys in a fast, silent rehearsal. Then she started again, got a bit farther, made an another mistake, stopped again, and went back to the start. In this fashion, working instinctively, she learned the song. One of the psychologists calculated that Clarissa learned more in that span of five minutes than she would have learned in an entire month practicing her normal way in which she played uh, songs straight through, ignoring any mistakes. Why? Picture the wires of Clarissa's brain during those five minutes. Each time she made a mistake, she was, one, sensing she made the mistake, two, stopping and fixing it, thus welding the proper connection in her brain. Each time she repeated the passage, she was strengthening those connections and linking them together. She was not just practicing, she was building her brain. She was in the sweet spot. So we have talked in the past about the famous, uh, to become a master of something, you need 10,000 hours of practice. Um, but this is a case that uh, I have found in other research that is connected to that. And that is, if you do something properly, you can make huge uh, leaps of accomplishment in short periods of time. So um, I'll let you run from uh, here. Give me uh, just whatever you want to talk about, uh, about this amazing book. And this is called The Little Book of Talent. So Daniel, take it away. Well, since I gave you that book, I don't know how many years it's been, but it changed my life. And I forgot who told me about that book, but I... Um, use those techniques to this day. I do all different kinds of music, classical music, uh, world music, uh, you know, play different instruments. And I need to learn fast. I need to be efficient. Uh, I can't take my time to, to learn 
anything at all because I'd have to move on to the next project and do something else. So what I do is exactly what I learned from the Little Book of Talent. The reason why it isn't that it's new information. It's information that everybody's heard from their piano teacher when they were a kid. And that is to practice slowly, uh, use a metronome, you know, measure your progress and play perfectly. What the Little Book of Talent does is it tells you why. And when you understand why, then you can apply it specifically to learning. That That's a big deal for me. Like when you're a kid and they say, eat liver, it's good for you. <laughs> Um, is it good for you? You know, if you know why and exactly what, what it does to your body, then, you know, you can make correct choices. So, um, I use this technique of practicing slowly and perfectly. And there are two things that I believe that you can control because as you mentioned, perfect practice, the repetition is like welding the neural pathways in your brain and Performing is best when you have a piece moved from your memory to your physical or motor memory. And that is what repetition does, where you can actually play something without thinking. And there's no substitute for the repetition. But if you're repeating things over and over for 10,000 hours, but you're playing it wrong, you have welded those connections, that mistake into your brain, you are practicing making a mistake. So the two things that you can control to experience perfect practice is speed and size. Speed meaning how fast you play it. Um, if I'm playing a passage, let's just say I've got four bars and I'm playing it and oh, I get shipped up on this spot. What do I do? I turn my metronome down and I play it again. Oh tripped up again, slow it down some more. I'm still making mistakes, so maybe I can turn it down slow enough to where I can play it perfectly. Good, I've solved the problem. Now I will play it 10 times perfectly at that speed. And the reason why we use a metronome is you need to measure exactly where you're capable of playing it at perfectly, right? If you come back the next day and you don't know how fast you were doing it, you'd be making mistakes all over again. So 85 beats per minute. Then I'll go to 86 beats per minute and play it 10 times perfectly. 87, 88, 89, 90. Oh, 90, I'm starting to make mistakes again. So that is one way of using speed to perfect your practicing. The other thing that you can do is you can take those four bars and divide it into two bars. So now I'm only playing half the phrase at that same speed, but I'm playing it perfectly, right? Whereas if I put the extra four bars in there, that's a lot for my mind to, to take in, a lot of information, I'm not quite ready for it yet, I'll make a mistake. So size, two bars, smaller, chances are you're gonna play perfect. If you still can't do it, do one bar. If you can't do one bar, do one beat. And a lot of times I'm practicing just one beat. And I'll just play that beat, play that beat, add beat two, play two beats, two beats, two beats. So all my repetition, this is the most important part is when you get to repeating something, it has to be absolutely perfect. That is the most important thing because then you're putting something into your motor memory that is perfect. And that chunk of information and that connection uh, that you formed, that you well did, is perfect. It's not going to break.
So I notice a lot of questions online about strumming patterns. Uh, let's talk a little bit about rhythm. Uh, rhythm with regards to strumming. Uh, I do my strumming with a down, up, down, up, down, up pattern with the down beat on my down strum. And it doesn't matter what my pattern is, I'm always moving my right hand down, up, down, up, down, up. So if I'm doing it uh, like a funk pattern, we and I agree with you. I think to develop your right hand, just mute your left hand. Don't think about chords. Don't distract your brain from something else with harmonies and things like that. Just strum the four strings and make make it sound even like a train engine. Um, and that, and then you mute and you hold chords and do things, you know, chop strums or whatever. But my hand is always doing that down, up, down, up motion. I don't go down, down, up, up, down, up, and you know, there's those are only the accents. The you know, in, when they say, "Oh, do that down, down, up, up, down, up," strum. Well, I'm still going down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up the whole time, and that's what creates what we call a groove. Uh, I believe the metronome for myself using it. In the con rhythm in the context of music is extremely important and a metronome. Speaking of playing in a group, rhythm is actually what unifies us, right? We have to kind of be on the same clock to play together. Yeah, so it, it's, to me, you know, the three elements of music, melody, harmony, and rhythm, I think rhythm is kind of, it can be the most overlooked. Yeah, definitely. And, and something else that I've noticed, you know, the ukulele is, is a social instrument or a social vehicle to so many people. It's like they have a book club or a bridge club, but they happen to use a ukulele. And uh, newer people will jump into going into clubs, groups, and that sort of thing. And you can't hear yourself. I mean, ukulele can hardly hear as it is. And you're in, in a room with a hundred of them. And they're all in this din of stuff going on. And to me, a danger of that is you can be making mistakes and not even know it. And then you're feeding your brain connections mistakes. So that's a case where I strongly suggest if you're not a strong player, mute the neck and, and concentrate on the, the rhythm and the percussive feel on the right hand because you can feel that even if you can't hear it. I mean, they're great, great things, and I'm not trying to, to in any way discourage anyone from going to them, but be careful if you're, if you're learning that when you go to that um, type of situation and you can't hear the music, that you're, you're getting something positive fed to your brain, good data rather than bad data to your brain. Right. That, that's a great suggestion. Or if you want to concentrate on the harmony and not worry about your right hand, you can just play the downbeats. Oh, there you go. Like if everyone's playing a C chord, you could just strum C, two, three, four, one, and go to F, three, four, F, two, three, four. And that way you can put all of your mental energy on your left hand yeah. and learning the harmony. Yeah. And then when they play the song again, then maybe you might work on making sure your right hand feels the correct rhythm and you can create a groove and never mind the harmony and then you know the next week when you play that same song you can put it together yeah so so for listeners who are saying that's me 
the the D-U-D-U-D-D-U-U on the page is, is confusing me and all of that. Uh, go back to your, you're, you're going up, down, up, down. You're not necessarily, or down, up, down, up. You're not necessarily hitting each time. Your, your, your hand is continuing to move, mm-hmm. but there may be times when you lift it off and don't make contact. You're just keeping that going, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, any, anything else, any other insight on, uh, on the little book of talent or, uh, anything you've, you've picked up in that realm of cerebral additions to the typical lesson? Well, as it relates to ukulele, um, one thing that I just love about the ukulele is of course, there's no substitute for the repetition, right? And so the little book of talent teaches us how to to do the repetition in such a way that it will benefit us as quickly as possible. Um, 10,000 hours of practicing is 10,000 hours, but I know people that have played for 10,000 hours. And I can tell, oh, they spent those 10,000 hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, Smart practicing, you know, productive practicing is one thing. But what I love about the ukulele is you can put in those 10,000 hours of perfect practice walking a trail, walking around your house, walking in your yard, sitting by the pool at happy hour, which I love to do. Um, I go to happy hour and I take my ukulele, my STL, I got an inexpensive one, laminate uke, and I eat and I drink. And I put in time practicing ear training by playing to the lounge music that's playing overhead <laughs> or, or working on a passage or taking a solo on, you know, whatever is playing on the radio. Um, it's just a wonderful instrument. You can't do that with the piano. You can't even do that with a guitar. It's a little too big to, you know, show up in a restaurant. Now, my advice to everyone is to eat with your right hand because your left hand touches the neck. And if you're eating French fries or anything greasy or saucy, you have to wipe your hand before you touch your instrument. But if you're using your right hand, you know, really only your fingernails or the tips of your fingers touch the strings and the strings are nylon or fluorocarbon or whatever, and it doesn't even matter. So I always eat with my right hand <laughs> and, I, and I play and, and get my hours in. And I would say that I practice my ukulele considerably more than piano or guitar the other thing is everything you learn on ukulele translates directly to guitar right fingering with your left hand plucking with your right hand and i can pick up a guitar and it doesn't feel foreign to me because my hands are used to those motions so um yeah it's 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 powerful and you know one thing i'd like to say about repetition repetition uh is to me uh it's meditation but it's not just meditation. You're not just sitting there or it's productive meditation, focusing on something repetitive. And as it becomes just motor memory, you kind of just lose yourself and you're not thinking about, you know, or, or any pattern or anything. It just happens. And it's peaceful. It's healing. Uh, so I, I love that part, the repetitive part of practicing in that way as well and thinking about ideas for what to do or what to have for dinner or <laughs> what to do with my life and <laughs> <laughs> so 
so yeah it, it's it's good it's good for the soul yeah yeah okay so so my plan for this podcast is to end every interview uh with the same couple of questions so you're my first guinea pig here um the talent code uh and the little book of talent both uh stress observing uh, top performers in this case um the experts in the field really intently and uh and stealing from them um i mean the beatles stole from many influences and they did okay so uh, i think as a ukulele player in my bedroom i can i can steal from top people so early on, um, who were your musical inspirations, um, and uh, was there anyone whose style you tried to emulate? Well, of course, I, you know I was a fan of the Beatles, the Bee Gees, uh, Queen, and and uh, Journey, and the you know the groups of my time, Prince. Um, but musically, Bach and Dave Grusin. So Dave Grusin's harmonies and his his modern sounds and rhythms, and and Bach for his counterpoint. I, I use his techniques, his choral writing techniques in everything from my guitar voicings, ukulele, uh, piano, if I'm writing for an orchestra, I I just do it that way. I just, do, you know, contrary motion, oblique motion, all these things. Um, and I do, I do steal. I, I think what, a better word might be paraphrasing. <laughs> and what I try to do, I, I recommend uh, world music because... Uh, a lot of these things we haven't heard before, like, you know, Ami's traditional songs or Paiwan songs or Mongolian long songs, and it opens your mind to what can be done with sound and how it corrects, connects directly to emotion without all the technicalities, you know, the harmonies and melodies that we use. And if you put and paraphrase, draw elements from all different cultures and put together uh, something, your own musical stew, that's my new word for today, <laughs> um, it suddenly becomes unique and your own. Strumming patterns and rhythms, I use rhythms, ukulele strumming patterns, not from any strumming pattern that other ukulele players do or anything that has been done traditionally with the instrument, but I will use a partido alto rhythm, for example, uh, and which is a traditional samba pattern on a gogo bell. And I'll make an ukulele strumming pattern or fingerstyle pattern using a partido alto rhythm. And that's fun. But it's the same down, up, down, up, down, up thing. I'm just going instead of, and that strumming pattern is not done on ukulele in any song that I've ever heard. So I'm paraphrasing and putting it in a Hawaiian song with Hawaiian lyrics, you know, but using it to make the composition uh, unique. And it's it's a lot of fun. So there's a lot of uh, inspirations that you can draw from and you can find them all on YouTube. Uh, so yeah. yeah isn't a YouTube an amazing tool? Uh, before we get away, let, let I, I don't want to leave anybody confused. Let's go back to Bach. Can you uh, define counterpoint? Counterpoint is like a melody, uh, a counter melody. Um, what Bach does, well, Beethoven, everybody, is you, you take a, a theme, a motif, 
and you develop it by repeating it, you repeat it in different parts of the scale, and that's called diatonic transposition. Um, for example, uh, the Sherman Brothers. It's a small world. Everybody knows this song. Da 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 da. And a diatonic transposition of that is da 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 da. So to do something like that, and they, you know they structure a whole song like that. To do it in counterpoint would mean if you're singing that and you're a uh, alto or soprano, a uh, tenor might sing that same melody in a different part of the scale, in between the actual melody. So it sounds like a counter melody, hmm. and so counterpoint is really. A counter melody. I think. Okay, and the last question: um, If you could go back in a time machine to your younger self, uh, whether just starting out or any time along the way, um, is there any bit of advice you would give to the young Daniel Ho from what you know now? Mm, I would have practiced harder, not just harder, but smarter. So I wish that. You know, someone knew specifically exactly what we're talking about now in this little book of talent book, and um, explained it to me in that way, way back when, and that I believed it, I understood the why, took it to heart, and did it. Um, I would be much better off now because there's so many things that I'm not able to do at my age. You know, in the overall arc of our lives, when you're young, you can do things physically that you cannot do when you're older. So practicing smart at an early age with that physical ability and dexterity would have been exponentially more <laughs> profitable and beneficial in my career. So you've been working on a new album. Is it out yet? Yes. Uh, Playing Through Changes came out uh, late last year. And towards the end of last year, I started uh, getting into video production making music videos and things like that so um, my YouTube channel you know I have video colors in her do you have do you ever sleep I do I sleep an awful lot ah. you know what making us all feel bad you sleep and can get all this stuff done no you know what <laughs> you know I consider my you know the, uh, this is it's not advice but I suggest using this pandemic time at home to hibernate well, I think we've been forced into that, right? Yeah, you just, I just wake up whenever I feel like waking up. And I haven't even caught up, knock on wood, I haven't even caught a cold in a year. Prior to that, Lydia and I were chasing all over the place, getting food poisoning in China and, you know, going here, going there, not getting a seat, waking up early to catch a plane and, and really taxing your body and dealing with allergies and all kinds of other things that come with just not being at a hundred percent but sleep heals so oh, yeah. you know oh, going yeah. back to practicing never practice tired if you're sitting there doing things over and over or composing a song and you're tired all your mind is thinking about is being tired it associates that tiredness with that song it connects it just like that song in high school that you broke up to remember that one <laughs> it associates that song with what was happening at that time so in some ways, you know, being at home and taking our time to meditate about what to do with the rest of our lives going forward and to put the brakes on. We're not forced into any kind of routine, but
but like, okay, what direction do I want to take right now? It's kind of a a wonderful way to spend that time. You want to give a you want to give a commercial uh, advertisement oh. for your products. Uh, Let's see. Well, okay, yes. Um, everything I have is at danielho.com. And so uh, the latest thing I actually just created was a t-shirt. And this t-shirt has been in development since 2013 when I was wow. in Japan on tour. Um, I, I do, you know, workshops and clinics and talks uh, about music. And this is uh, an idea I came up with uh, that explains music as a whole in its entirety so what we're talking about here in this uh podcast is about learning and rhythm and so on but what is that in context to music as a whole so what i did was i developed uh, this tree well so with branches and music can divide be divided into three main categories melody harmony and rhythm those are the three main elements right and then from there they each branch off into technical and creative for example the technical side of melody is a scale a major scale and all of the modes and a minor you know minor scales harmonic minor melodic minor pentatonic scale pentatonic with a blues note whole tone scale diminished scale and so on melody creative is what we talked about earlier in this podcast about how do you take a theme and develop it you use techniques like diatonic transposition, inversion, turning it upside down, inversion retrograde, upside down and backwards, augmentation, diminution, stretching it out, putting it close to, you know, faster in time or by interval. So that's melody, harmony, and creative. And then, you know, rhythm, harmony, and creative, harmony, uh, technical, and creative. And then I, instead of, so I had this graph that I created uh and then I spent years thinking about what I don't want it to be a graph. I want it to be something artistic and visual. So what I did was I took that graph and I made a tree and a trunk with three branches. And then in the tree, a banyan tree, which is a tree in Hawaii that we used to play on, where you swing from the vines and you can spend hours and hours having fun with this tree. It's symbolic. And with music, you can spend your whole life studying all these different aspects about it. And in this t-shirt, this image of this tree, has every single aspect of music, of melody, harmony, rhythm, in both technical and creative listed on there. So it's a great conversation piece, but it's also an image that I would use as soon as you open the front door if I were to ever start a music school. Hmm. Because what it does is it gives you context. You think like, okay, if I'm studying melody a major scale i'm in this little spot of the tree but look how much there is to learn so anyway <laughs> long story it, it, short so that tree that uh, t-shirt's available on your website yes that's my latest creation so i'm i'm going to give you a bit of advice i think this is the first t-shirt that's going to have to come with a user's guide <laughs> <laughs> but we could sit across from each other and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and we could talk for hours about all of these little things and and the tree would kind of <laughs> be like a conversation starter wow wow <laughs> if you're into music <laughs> yeah well everybody go uh go to danielho.com pick up uh, playing through changes uh pick up the mongolian between the sky and prairie did i get it right yes yeah okay uh, for some reason grass keeps popping into my mind when i'm thinking prairie um 
And uh, thank you so much for for being my first guinea pig on this uh, podcast. And hopefully we'll get to work together in person very soon. I'm getting my uh, Johnson & Johnson shots on Tuesday. And you youngsters uh, have to wait a little longer, but uh, you'll be getting yours soon. Awesome. You know, I would like to mention one more thing. Sure. So this tree, all of these aspects of music, I actually taught it in a course with Yamaha. And it's an ukulele program I did for Yamaha that's online. And you can find it at musicians.online. That's a strange website address, but if you type in musicians, period, online, you can find this program. And uh, there, there's just a few instructors on it. Uh, Lee Rittenauer is teaching guitar. Bob James is teaching piano. Uh, Billy Sheehan's teaching bass. And Akita Jimbo is teaching drums. It is something that starts from square one and works Square out. one. If you've okay. never touched an instrument, it talks about the woods of the instrument and proper right hand and left hand technique and how to strum and how to pluck notes, how to read. So it what the idea is, is, you know, there are 28 lessons, but I, you know, just kind of explain everything very concisely. And you can spend years of time doing all of these techniques and developing it's one thing to understand it and it's something completely different to own it meaning can you do this in all 12 keys (laughs) and that's you know a lifetime right there so what i did was i just presented the information and then you can run with it on your own wow cool musicians.online danielhode.com um go there get stuff Help and yourself iTunes. get better, and and iTunes. Can, are you are you a downloadable artist on iTunes? Yes, I am. Ah, everything I go. have is on iTunes. I, I only do iTunes. Ah, okay, okay. All right, I think uh, I think we're done. Thank you so much, and um, once again, hopefully, we'll be in the same room in the very near future and uh, work on some things together again. Yes. And if this podcast is going to be out soon, I want to let everyone know that on March 27th, I'm going to be on a special on NHK, which is Japan's uh, national TV station, uh, commemorating the 10th year since the Tohoku earthquake. Hmm. And I'll be playing ukulele in that show. And it's, you know, they have a lot of wonderful artists on there like Sting. Uh, Lady Gaga, Suga um, Shikao, um, Sadao Watanabe. It will be shown worldwide later on in the, in the year on NHK World. Cool. Good, good, good. All right. Well, I think it's time to make dinner. So. All right. Thanks, Doug. Good to see your face. <laughs> and uh, we'll be in touch soon. We will. Take care. Hi, Melinda and the family. So that's it for our first Ukulele Brain podcast. Uh, Don't forget to go to our website, theukulelebrain.com, to view upcoming guests and topics. I'd like to thank Victoria Vox for the permission to use her song, Jessica, on this podcast. And I'd like to thank Daniel Ho for permission to use his song, Schools Out, on this podcast. 
For now, keep on strumming, stay well. We'll be talking to you in a week or so with episode two.